It's a beautiful evening. It's a nice cool breeze. Some slight rain that's just fallen. The chirping of birds. We're here simply in our these bodies, these minds, this community. But what separates us? What is it that keeps us from being nourished deeply by these simple facts? This evening, I'd like to continue with the themes that I began last time, working with practice as a relational practice to objects, working with time, and working with the fundamental question that the Buddha dealt with, suffering at its end. We're right in the heart of the retreat now. We've had time to settle in a bit. Hopefully the mind and heart have been calmed and steadied enough to let us look into what is beneath the surface. And there we may find suffering. So that's where we'll start. I want to begin by reading a quote. It's by uh, Daniel Siegel in the book called Mindsight. And as we engage this evening, perhaps we can uh, recommit to our, the relational aspect of practice, which is to be with ourselves as we're with the activity that we're engaged in here. Of course, it's a Dharma talk. So there, were, there was a study done between mother and children. And we're exploring attention here. A mother is asked to sit with her four-month-old infant facing her and when signaled to stop interacting with her child. This still phase in which no verbal or nonverbal signals are to be shared with the child is profoundly distressing. For up to three minutes, the child attempts to engage the now non-responsive parent in a bid for connection. At first, the child usually amps up her signals increasing smiles, coos, eye contact. But after a period of continuing non-response, she becomes agitated and distressed. Her organized bids for connection melting into signs of anguish and outrage. She may then attempt to soothe herself by placing her hands on her mouth or pulling at her clothes. Sometimes researchers or parents call off the experiment at this time. But sometimes it goes on until the infant withdraws, giving up in a kind of despondent collapse that looks like melancholic depression. These stages of protest, self-soothing, and despair reveal how much the child depends upon the attuned responses of a parent to keep her own internal world in equilibrium. 
So when I read this some time ago, I was struck by it, of course, as an important understanding of development. But I was also struck by it in terms of how these patterns of relating can carry on much beyond the life of a three-year-old. And they can give us insights. They can be a jumping off point into seeing how if we don't get what we want, we try to get it and we suffer. So I don't know about for you, but for me, even as an adult, with people, often if I, I look for a certain type of attention, affirmation, and what do I do to get it? Well, I may just be friendly and honest. I may slip into some manipulation of some kind of little attentional seduction. I may, if I'm still not getting response, either positive or negative perhaps, then what do I often do? Or what does one do? Anger, pushing away. Attacking in some way, criticizing. And if there's no response, Continually, often it goes inside, and I may try to uh, distract myself. Some form of self-soothing or going to an object outside that gets soothed. And if it goes on long enough, I may just shut down if there's a deep attachment or a deep longing for that person or that thing. So these are movements that are deeply embedded in our psyches. And the study points out that they're in the, the psychic structure of developing meaning and health. And so as I spoke last time, there's being human means that we need to be connected. But we have the opportunity to see underlying energies that get cultivated through our pushing and pulling in relation to people. And we can start as we mature as spiritual or mindful human beings to find ways of getting nourished that are not bound up in objects in this way. So the Buddha would talk about this object dependence in a way as, and how we work is simply greed, hatred, and ignorance. not in terms of the mother-child bond, but in terms of the, the, need to hold to, the need to get objects that we move in a way. So I'm using a parallel here, okay? So that we move in a way where we go towards a wanting, we have the wanting mind. We have the rejecting mind. And we have the mind that, that does not see clearly the object and what it can offer us. Now as a child with a mother, that's, that's very necessary in terms of growing up. And when we don't get that, then that forms uh, patterns in our psyches that reveal itself again and again. And what that shows up as, actually as colorations, in terms of how we meet the objects as we grow up. And so that we have a perception based on these early wounds that often doesn't give us a healthy way to be in relationship with objects as we grow because we're still seeing 
through lenses of early wounds in this example. So forgive me if, I, if you uh, misinterpreted that the, these early bonds are actually just greed, ignorance, and delusion. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> thank you. Uh, we could do a Q&A here. <laughs> I think I'll save that for, for, uh, for Friday night. Uh, take, or uh, Thursday night. Friday night, we'll all be somewhere else. <laughs> um, take it as, let it, it's, it's meant to be, this is meant to be something which we take inside as understanding how vulnerable we are in terms of our relation to objects and how we work often uh, in a manipulative way to get our needs met by what the object can give us. So that's why, it's being, that's why I'm telling this story, because it's very poignant. And it's very poignant at a developmental level when we don't get our needs met the way that's healthy. What happens? But our, our work in practice, in a way, we're learning as we grow older to, uh, to self-parent in a certain way. We're learning to find ways to get nourished by, how we, by the quality of our attention and having a more accurate relationship to objects. And that's really what I'm going to be speaking about tonight. And I think that's a lot of what our practice is about. So this is a way of getting into the suffering, of getting into just understanding uh, what happens when we don't get our needs met at a human level, but then what happens for many of us, whether it comes from childhood or whether it's just a deep psychic structure, how we work towards manipulating the world. And when we don't get it often with people, uh, or in addition to working with people, we do it with objects that are other than people. I know for myself, if I have a void, if I have a lingering need inside from something that was not met, say from a parent-child relationship, and actually, this is not, I'm not gonna do a lot of self-talking here, but my mother actually did leave when I was six. And so the story, the story uh, and we're very close now, and we've developed a good you know, adult relationship, um, but the story to me spoke of a void, an inner sense of disconnect, which I'm approaching from different angles. A sense that the conditioning of the past imposed itself on the present, and then through thoughts, imputes itself on the future and really colors how I meet the moment now and cuts me off from intimacy. So that's, I think that's a deep shared experience that many humans have. And the path of the Buddhist teachings is to learn to work with that, to work with the tendencies. So last time I spoke of external objects and we'll speak more about that. So that's in a way we transfer. We, uh, we transfer the need for recognition and affirmation to people, and then we get it through things, right? I do. <laughs> uh, we, we get it through nice objects. Um, we get it through, we get feeling, good feeling tone. We get meaning. Um, because we think that through controlling things, we can, we can really fill up in a way. But we pay a cost because the world doesn't cooperate because things are impermanent and things change. And as we just we're just building on what we what I spoke of last time. Um, so there, 
clear blocks to intimacy through the mind that is colored, that imposes non-clear seeing, and then get, it all gets bound up in a lack of being directly, cleanly connected. And last time we spoke of how time does this, of how, we, how the past and the future, their agendas and their wounds and their expectations through these energies impede on the present. So our path, in a way, is to learn to understand how... And what happens is our, our hearts and minds get very full of, uh, in a way, of, of stuff, of the energies of pushing and pulling, and of the stuff they're associated with. So have you noticed that there's... Uh, as, we, as we work with the breath, it's, or we work to calm down, that there's, and then we open up, that often we see a lot of stuff in the mind and the heart. It feels like there's a fair amount of clutter in there. So fundamentally, in a way, the path is learning to calm ourselves enough, learning to steady the mind, shamatha, in whatever way we're doing it, here primarily in breathing in the whole context of the body or whatever variations thereof you're practicing. And then we use that to start to actually see into the nature of all of these, and as a generalization, I'll call them objects, these coalesced energies, psychological energies, physical energies, uh, imaginary energies, historical energies. They get all bound up and they get, they, get, uh, they get trapped. They get trapped in our psyches and it gets to be a little bit crowded inside. So. When the mind calms down, we start to actually look in. When we open up, we start to see whatever's there, and that's part of what's there. Uh, and then, little by little, our relationship to them changes. So that we don't need them in a certain way. We don't need them to behave in a certain way. We see them, start to see them as nature, as processes. And then, as we get to know, well, you see what happens in little bits. Perhaps there's a little letting go and a little more freedom and a little more space. And we've been working with, in a classical frame, we've been working with the body and breath as a frame. And then we've opened into uh, what are considered the other foundations of mindfulness or the other areas that we can place mindfulness as a way both to study the mind and also to see into the nature our nature here so that the mind becomes a little freer and starts to see the nature of, of everything that we perceive as, as nature, as change, as movement, etc. Not as fixed objects that we need to hold on to to be satisfied by. So we work with the body we, and we open it up and we, what do we see? We see the life of the mind and the heart. Right? We see this second and third foundation. We see the life of the feeling tone, which is very rich. Uh, we begin to see into images, thoughts, moods, time moving through past, future, in the form of thoughts and images. We start to see these life forms, and then we fully open. And of course, we open to sounds 
and sight and space and all the senses. And if the mind has cultivated steadiness, and there's actually a couple of ways to look at the concentrated mind, the steadied mind. One is what we get by focusing on an object. So if we in, out, breathing, nice, we get calm, we get steady. It's based on the object. But the quality of mind itself, actually, it's, it's, uh, the object helps us to touch it because we come back to it again and again. It's a simple training, attentional training. But the quality of concentration itself can also be open. It's a steady mind. So we use that steady mind to look into this, to, to just open and to see the flow of life. And then little by little, uh, there's a quality of unpacking that happens. The energies bound up slowly start to reveal themselves. And what do we have left? Well, we start to move from seeing objects in a way that's solid, very solid, to starting to see process, change, flow. Where's the scientist in the room? I've got another uh, analogy. This one is a particle. As far as I understand, and I've been exposed to this from a number of different angles, with a certain experiment, when you look at a particle all the way down to the size of an atom, you can see it either, uh, you can either see it, as, see it as particle, or you can see it as wave. So they're both characteristics, but we can't actually see it as both at the same time. So it takes one experiment to see it one way, and it takes a little bit different one to see it another. Get it? So our movement is to move from seeing the actual content of experience as solidity, which it is. We are real, we are here. The psychological content that we have has historical precedence. When we have a fantasy, it has some actual uh, quality in the mind at that moment. There's an actual image, etc. Planning, actually, we are planning for something. So that at one level, there's reality, there's, uh, there's substance, so there's, there's content that's real. At another level, there's wave-like action, there's process, there's thought as movement, there's image as energy, there's sensation as movement. And within the context of, say, an atom, when you see, when you see a wave action, the wave action exists in space. It exists in a framework that is greater than it because it's not, it's not solid. It doesn't take up all the space. So what does that mean? What does that mean for our actual experience coming back to our practice? When we start to see life as process, when we go from solidity to change, there's we let things move, they move because that's their nature. It's actually their nature depending on how we see. So the concentrated mind that opens and has interest can little by little, or all at once, different ways start to see solidity as change. And then that gives us quite naturally a sense of space in the mind and the heart. And that space can be quite useful. One of my 
Zen teachers in Japan told me I stayed there just for about, I think I was in Japan about two and a half years, and with him much less than that. Uh, and he told me before I left, he said, you stay with me 20 years, because you have a lot of, basically he said, you have a lot of stuff in your mind, and, and, and you got a lot of work to do to empty it out. And then once it's empty, it will be very useful. <laughs> I said, great, there goes my, what is it, $200,000, $100,000 education. Nothing. <laughs> Junk. <laughs> Larry's was three times that much. <laughs> well, in the time. There's another Zen analogy of uh, a, a professor. Sorry, Larry. He's a former professor. Okay. He's given it up. Uh, a professor comes in. Actually, I'm a professor this summer at Tufts University. I teach Buddhism in the summer. Um, so I'm full of those ideas. It's actually hard to make the shift. I was giving lectures last week to come here uh, and, and get out of academic mind. It's much nicer to be here. <laughs> it's what it's about. Um, a Zen master and a professor get together, and Zen master asks the professor if he'd like some tea. He said, sure. So he starts, the Zen master starts pouring the tea in the professor's cup, and he keeps pouring, and he keeps pouring. It's half full, it's two-thirds full, it's three-quarters, it's full, and it starts flowing out. And the professor says, what are you doing? He said, I'm just filling the cup up like your mind is filled up. I don't know if he practiced or not, but we're here to practice because it makes a difference. If it does, in the quality of our present moment experience, in the quality of how we can meet our lives. So I want to tell a story now of uh, how many people here every year make a vow to do spring cleaning? or the intention to do it. How about summer cleaning? <laughs> so you got, if you have a basement, okay, then you, the stuff's down there or closets, whatever, and you wanna get rid of it, some of it at least. You wanna know what's useful and get rid of the stuff. So you have more room to put more stuff, but that's a different issue. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's a wonderful analogy for the, for the mind. So uh, myself and my partner, uh, Malika, um, we, have a, we have a house in uh, Newburyport, Massachusetts, or West Newbury, actually. Been there a few years, uh, two and a half years or so. And we have a big basement, and it's really pretty full of stuff already, because we both moved in from two different places, and it's just filled with junk. You'll get, if you haven't already gotten where this is going, you probably, you will soon enough. Uh, so we've been intending, and there's much too much stuff in there. It's old inherited stuff, and we just don't need most of it. The house is set up. So we've been intending to clean it out quite a, for quite a while, and we haven't. Oh, yeah, we'll get to that. Okay, we'll get to that. So pause. So that's now what is the basement? The basement is the room in our psyches, in our minds, in our hearts, that we fill up. And often we fill it up because we're trying to fill a gap. We're trying to fill a need. And so we collect some of the objects we really do need, right? We're householders. We live this life where we have to deal with objects. <laughs> okay. I was a monk for a while. 
It's very different. There you just deal with the objects up here more. And then the four objects you're allowed to own, then sometimes you have an interesting relationship with those. Uh, but we deal, so it's, it's an analogy for the mind, the heart. So it gets filled up. So in the story of the mother and the child, just taking it out of, just take that principle now and apply it to ourselves. If there's a lack, if there's a need, if there's a split from being nourished in the present moment, from seeing clearly, from having, being able to drop into a sense of not being bound by time and the energies of time, which we spoke of last time, then there's a freshness, there's a renewal, and it changes our relationship to things. When we don't have that, well, often we accumulate to fill the void. Uh, and the mind gets pretty full, gets filled with memories, gets filled with the need to be full because there's, it, that we feel like there's a lack. So our minds and our hearts get filled up just like the basement does. So what happened this summer, this spring? Anyone live in, oh, it happened up and down the East Coast, I think. Floods. So our basement was flooded, not once, but twice. After the first flood, and we had three pumps down there, and we got a lot of the water out, and it all was out within a few days, we said, oh, good. Okay, we can just go back to normal. We'll clean out the, we'll clean out the, the basement later. What started to happen? Things were rotting. Things started to stink. And so we were forced to actually clean, to take out a lot of stuff that was in there, and then a lot of it, and then see what we actually wanted to keep and then put that back in, but on a little higher level, and throw the rest of it out. We got partway done. Most of the rotting things are out. So going back to the mind, what would force us to clean out inside, to do the actual work of packing, unpacking our experience, calming and steadying the mind? And then seeing into things, we're creating more space because we change our relationship to experience. Often it's suffering. We, even though we think that we, don't, we, that we are looking at stuff that's in the basement, we actually aren't. We want to keep that door pretty closed because there's a lot of fear and anxiety and loneliness and the energies down there that we don't want to deal with. Uh, and the objects in our minds and hearts, our histories, projections, etc., that hold those, those energies. But suffering, suffering smells, <laughs> doesn't it? And we have to go out in the basement. Well, we have two refrigerators down there. So we have to go down and get food. We have, to, we have to go there sometimes. It's just part of our house. So when we go down there and it's smelled, we got to deal with this. So when, we, when our psyches touch us and, it's, and, and there's suffering there and it lingers, it's actually a call to do some inner cleaning. It's actually a call to do the work. And now we can, I know people that fill up their houses with junk and they keep closing the doors and their usable space gets less and less. I know someone who I'm not actually, I have never visited their house because they don't want people to see it. It's so full of stuff. Get it? So 
We're here to clean out our basements. <laughs> We're here to create the conditions where we can create some more space in our minds and our hearts. And at one level, it takes hard work because we have to do the effort. We have to keep coming back to what we've set for ourselves so that the mind touches its own innate capacities to see clearly. We create conditions to do that, and we're in the middle of this process now. And we may be getting some concentration. Uh, it might be like if we, were, if we were wanted to clean out our basement, uh, uh, we were working so we could get some money, and then we could pay someone to help clean out the basement. We're getting, we're, we're getting some credit here with our concentration. Even though we might not know it. But then we've opened the practice up, and now we're saying, okay, how are you going to use that? Whatever little bit of steadiness comes, how are you going to use that? And so we have a choice. We can keep building it. We can dissipate it. And we can dissipate it by over-efforting as well as not efforting enough. We can get tight, and that loses it too. Or we can choose to open and to do the work. And sometimes it's heavy lifting. And sometimes it's really hard. There's a lot of resistance in being with the energies that are arising because they don't smell good. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes you find jewels. You're not even, they're there. You open up. You go down and you see what's there. And then, well, the analogy of the movers paying the people breaks down. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just pay someone to do this work for us inside? Unless <laughs> we have a little cash. Uh, we get a certain kind of credit, but it's, it's the credit of seeing, and then we have to use that to look into our own hearts and minds. So then when we do that, and I mean this not to be abstract at all. I hope that we're letting this sink in in terms of just a kind of honesty and how are we relating? How are we relating to our practice and to what we're doing and how we're working back and forth between really calming and steadying and really opening and being vulnerable and willing and open to see what actually arises. And then to see it, it when the mind is steady enough to start to see its nature, if, it's, if it reveals itself. And in the best case, then the things, all the stuff in the basement, it starts climbing out by itself. Actually, uh, the analogy breaks down somewhere. <laughs> it's not perfect, but you get the point. Okay. I particularly like this analogy because it asks us to take a bad situation and turn it into a good situation. It asks us to take the stuff that we don't like to look at. And by looking at it, uh, and by allowing it to do what it needs to do, and this is, this is, the, this is really this is, this is the stuff of, of grief. This is the stuff of loneliness, of isolation. It's also the stuff of joy, where we're attached. It's all the states of mind and heart. It's all of the movements of energies in the body that reveal themselves to the light of awareness. And often, if they're difficult, then we learn to touch. Uh, if we can learn to touch energies and see them as 
uh, food for fodder or uh, the word human and humus are related, same root. Humus being stuff of the earth, decomposition, where growth comes out of. It's very hard to see our psyches that way. But there's energy trapped in solidity of thought, solidity of memory, solidity of injury, identification. And there's energy released when there's wave action, to put it that way, when there's movement, just in the same when something decomposes in the ground, new life can spring out of it. And that new life is freshness. That new life is what Dogen talks about as intimacy, the core. Bahia, in the immediacy of the moment, with any sense door, we get out of the way. In the scene, there is only the scene. When you, that, that constriction. Now, dukkha, suffering, means constriction. It's solidification. When that is not there, this just this is the end of suffering. And what does this open us into? This depth of opening into the present. Okay, we've got space, more spaciousness. We have silence. Well, what good is it? What good is it? There was a, a book written, maybe some of you have seen it, it's called Who Moved My Cheese? It's a business book, actually, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine who was a businessman, gave it to me. And he's always, we have all these conversations about being in the world and moving flexibly. Uh, and he says, you're just sitting there and I'm moving flexibly. And he actually likes what I do. He thinks it compliments what he does. But he said, here's a book that'll bring our two worlds together in a way. Who Moved My Cheese? So it's a story of mice. It's a story. And there's, uh, there's a set of mice, and they go, th they, there's a maze, and they have cheese. There's a whole bunch of ways you can go through pathways, and there's cheese at a number of, uh, there's four of them, I guess, pieces of cheese. And they, the mice learn how to go and get the cheese. And so, and they are released here at one point, and they go through, and they get the cheese. So this, and they eat the cheese, and they come back, and they, I don't know how, what, what the rest of their day is like. <laughs> so, <laughs> so each day they get the little piece of cheese and they go get it and they're all very happy. So then one day, uh, someone decides to move their cheese. So there's a lot of ways they can go. Say there's, I'm making this up, say there's 20 different ways they can go. And there's four of them where there's cheese. And then they take, Someone takes the cheese and they put it in different places. Well, a couple of the mice, they go down and they, they go back where the cheese was and there's no cheese there. And what do they do? They go back and say, no cheese here, let's look around, let's find some other cheese. And they search until they find the cheese. And they keep going back until there's no more and they, they stay healthy and they stay flexible. They're willing to deal with things exactly as they are. When there's food there, there's food there. When there's not, there's not. There's Zen, there's Zen mice. <laughs> so other two, they go and they get their cheese, but then when the cheese isn't there, they keep going back. 
they keep going back again and again and again, trying to get cheese there. And it's a very sad ending for the two mice because they don't learn. I think one of them might learn grudgingly. I think they might be limping off towards the right direction. And one of them doesn't at all. Maybe two of them, I forget. But I can have liberty. It's a story, right? So that's a story that was in a book. Uh, and here's a, here's a study that was actually done of fish in a tank. And they had food on one side, same kind of thing. Fish on the other side. And they, they came over and they got the food, they got the food, they got the food. And then they put a glass plate. It has a sad ending as well. They put a plat glass plate and the fish come and they try to get the food and they hit the glass plate, they hit the glass plate, they hit the glass plate. And they hit it so many times that they start swimming up and turning back, swimming up and turning back, swimming up and turning back. And they're getting weaker and weaker. They take the glass away. The fish do the exact same thing. And they die. True story. So what does it matter that we learn to touch the freshness of the moment, which transcends our inner compulsivity, addiction to past, to future, to grasping, rejecting, not seeing clearly the value of objects? For, these, for the fish, it was a matter of life and death. They couldn't, the condition pattern was so strong. So we're learning to touch something which is outside of this so that when the glass isn't there anymore, we can swim through. I like it anyways. <laughs> okay. One more uh, from, one more from science. Sort of from science. <laughs> How much, what percentage of our brains do we use at one time? I've heard it's between uh, eight and 9%. And one of my students uh, at university, we had a nice conversation about this last week. And I thought, great, this is what we're actually trying to do. We get more space. We're actually learning on a biological level not to be so clogged up because neural pathways form and we want to be able to access more of our brain. So he said, actually, we use a lot of our brain. I don't know if we use absolutely all of it. We use a lot of it. We only use 8 or 9% at the same time. So for one activity, it fires here. For another activity, it fires here, et cetera, et cetera. So we have a limited ability to use. And, uh, and then he said, wouldn't it be amazing if we could, and this is people are interested in this in brain science, wouldn't it be amazing if we could have more activity going on at once, if we could use more of our brain? if we could use more of our mind. When we move to comprehensive, when we move to open awareness, we're actually stretching the capacity of our seeing. We're learning to touch a kind of intelligence. And when we, and we just approximate choiceless awareness in the practice. It's not, we're just creating the conditions where it can unfold. When we start to see in a holistic way, then the brain is much, the mind is much more flexible. And what mindfulness can do is even if we have these old patterns, 
called samskaras, reoccurring patterns in our minds and brains that go on old memories, etc. that by the power of our attention itself, we can actually start to create new pathways, even while, even while there still might be, say, an emotional response. So I talk about there might be some firing in the amygdala, for example. It's an old, old part of the brain that's triggered in emotions, or a medium old brain, part of the brain, from what I understand. Um, but that we actually can start to, we can actually start to fire different areas where centers in our brain which are more open, which have more joy, which see actually more clearly can be coexisting. So when we practice in an open way and the mind becomes steadier and calmer and then more open, we actually can feel this. There can be an emotion coming up and we can, it can be there, but we're not overwhelmed by it because we've touched a greater capacity that has a correlate in the brain. And we're talking mind now, okay? We're, we're talking the quality of attention now, moving back to that perspective. It touches the quality of um, learning to, to be fresh in the moment, to learn as we're living. And that's what we're emphasizing here. The learning being a product of the quality of our seeing. Very simple. I want to finish with a couple of, uh, uh, of looking into where do we, where do we how do we practice? Where do we practice? A few, uh, how does it influence our practice here and now? Well, it's always in, so back to the Buddhist model, we come and study the mind, we see into nature, and then we actually change the structure of how we're relating to experience. Fresh, present moment awareness doesn't limit us to habitual patterns of reactivity, okay? Create more space, more room. And there's room for intimacy there. There's room for a lot to move. We're touching that, hopefully to some extent. It always exists, it always arises in the fire of our relational life. And if you think that only happens when you're home, it happens here. So of course we've had reactions to the heat and to teachings we've received uh, and to the food and to the quality of our sleep and to our yogi jobs. So moving in and really being willing to learn as we live is the core of the teaching that keeps the mind fresh, that keeps the mind touching uh, that timeless quality. It's not bound by time. So we're learning as we're living. Uh, uh, one example, uh, when I gave the Dharma talk earlier, I want to revisit the mother-child, and we see our patterns, too. Last time I gave the Dharma talk, I'm used to teaching to where there's more responsiveness. And as I was giving the talk, I noticed that part of me, just a little bit, I was having this subtle sense of, I wanted some, I wanted some feedback. That's what I'm used to. And when I didn't get it, I did like the, I did like the analogy of the mother and the child. I was like, I, 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 part of me was like, maybe I'll move a little more, maybe I'll try to get a little deeper voice, you know, I don't know, something. And I felt myself getting stern, too. Okay, I'm going to give it to him. 
if they're not going to if they're not going to give me what I want in this interaction here, then I'm going to act in another way. And I didn't really see this until I had read the story again. And I said, wait a minute, I just did that. <laughs> uh, so it's so that was my in my relational piece. I was here, and I I saw those energies, those residual energies, still still functioning. So great, I learned something. It's not that I needed to actually learn, oh, I have this pattern and I need to do this or that or I need to change this or that. It was no. It's like there's a freshness in the seeing of it. And in the freshness, there's more possibility. Uh, and, but our cheese here, it's not physical. It's, it's the cheese that comes from clear, direct seeing and being nourished in the moment. What comes from that? And then the possibility of moving. So it's what Larry's poem was last night about the, the uh, what was his name, Larry? He's deep. Sorry. The last poem you read. Was it Hokusai? Thank you. Uh, sorry. This happened before. <laughs> this is not open awareness. This is samadhi. Okay, I don't know what's going on over there. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> so, but, <laughs> I didn't catch that. What do you say? Oh, as you're fantasizing, thank you. <laughs> we'll go into that later. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so Hokusai was fresh, right? And then Hokusai had a fantasy about being fresh until he was 110. Actually, that's what the point. How, when did he die, Larry? Sorry to rain on your parade, but <laughs> I don't think he made it. Okay. <laughs> Okay, uh, I think that's good. <laughs> Are we good? Okay. <laughs> Let's sit. Okay, time for walking. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.